Imagine a preacher not wanting to talk at you, not even wanting to talk to you, but would rather talk with you. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with ToddLittleton.net with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian and anyone interested in the intersection of pastoring and theology, pastoral ministry and theology. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Dr. Rick Davis, one of the influential men in my life, dating back almost 30 years. And we take a a rather interesting conversation and talk about uh, uh, a number of things, mostly about thinking and listening. So I hope you will stay tuned and listen. And and once you're done, if you found this podcast helpful, please share it. Uh, Also, Go over and uh, subscribe on iTunes. Give us a rating. Five stars would not be bad. It helps us in the uh, search engines. And along the way, it it might help encourage a pastor or someone interested in pastoral ministry that you know. You can find us on ToddLittleton.net, ThePastorTheologian.com, or ThePastorTheologian.net. Any way you can get to us, just uh, help us out and share along the way. Now, here's Dr. Davis and the conversation we recently had last week. Enjoy. Hello, okay. today on the podcast, I'm glad to have uh, Dr. Rick Davis, uh, one of the uh, most influential um, men in my life and ministry. And um, I was calculating it up and had cause this morning to kind of think about how long I have been involved in ministry. And, and it dawned on me that uh, my first uh, vocational staff position. Uh, would have uh, begun 30 years ago this coming August, and Dr. Davis was the pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, dates right. both of us. And so I um, wanted to get uh, uh, Dr. Davis on and, and uh, talk to him about maybe some things that he would share about his experience and theological reflection as a pastor, uh, maybe some advice, some suggestions he might give uh, young uh, clergy today, male or female, before we do all that, I want to uh, I'll let you know a little bit about Rick. And, and so, Rick, tell us what your favorite thing going on in life is right now. Well, my favorite thing going on in life right now, other than this phone call, is uh, the birth of our eighth grandchild. Um, I do realize that we've been, uh, you and I, 30 years uh, together in one sense or another because my youngest child is 30 and he and his wife have just had their second baby and this is a little girl named caroline and she loves her papa she's two weeks old uh, already talking walking around wants a car and uh, just loves her papa so as it should be as it should be we don't have a day they don't have a grandparents day but we ought to have a day and, yes, uh, you ought to have. So I want that. you to get right on that. So. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll work at that. We'll work at that. All right. So, um, uh, Rick, tell us tell us right now where you're where you're serving. I'm serving in the town of Midlothian, Texas. Um, something that's a little unusual for me uh, is that I'm actually speaking on Sundays at a Methodist church now after 40-plus years as uh, Baptist clergy. I still have my licensure and ordination with Baptist, but uh, the Methodists have been gracious to accept me 
and McNeil Eisen's local pastor, and I have a little church 6.3 miles from my house, and they are kind to let me come and preach on Sunday morning and do other pastoral duties. So uh, that's part of it. I'm also serving as a ad hoc director of some local political campaigns. I actually carry four telephones with me every day. It's insane. We're one month out from the primary. Um, happy to say that all my candidates are leading in uh, terms of raising money. And the polls indicate that uh, all my folks are going to win. So we're settling in on that a little bit. But we're a month out, and that is... Uh, Boy, it's just a nervous time for the candidates. It's got to be a scary thing to see your name on a ballot and um, know that you're going to be judged by your peers. And, uh, so I spent a lot of time on the phone and a lot of time on the road and a lot of time uh, dealing with people who uh, are still deciding you know, where their uh, support's going to go. And that's uh, that's a big part of what I do right now. And I'm also involved with several other local ministries. Uh, one that we participated in this last summer that I found just very exciting. Uh, we partnered with a, a small church that's actually Baptist background and a local food pantry and a local Title I school, uh, which means that English is a second language for many of the students. And um, we arranged a program with all those uh, cooperative groups uh, to have a program for the children this year, uh, this summer, uh, where they came to the small uh, local Baptist church at 10 o'clock in the morning, stayed until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, were supervised, uh, they had a hot meal uh, from the food pantry and uh, teachers from the school who helped them uh, get a little deeper into uh, the local language and other uh, other things that you learn in any public school. And um, so it was, a, it was a great ministry. We had uh, 30, 40 kids involved. And uh, most of them first-generation uh, immigrant families. So it was really just a great opportunity. So we, we spend time doing that. Um, have a ministry uh, also with young couples who are looking to be married. I do uh, sessions, whether I'm using, whether you're using me to do the wedding or not. I do uh Numerous sessions of premarital pastoral training, not counseling, training, because I'm a pastor and not a counselor. But we do uh, numerous sessions with young couples about to be married. Uh, one young couple came for two and a half years, almost every week, uh, before they got married. So that is a thing we're doing and helping people work through issues prior to being married instead of afterward when the issues become uh, problems. And uh, local ministries like that are things that we're able to do right now. And that's uh, 
been the great uh, blessing of being off the road uh, and back here after 13 years on the road. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm glad we have a, a setting that affords a lot of opportunities to engage, well, using the uh, uh, illustration of the, the small church where first-generation immigrants, uh, there probably isn't a, a more significant uh, social political issue uh, right now that demands some really decent um, uh, theological thinking uh, because uh, some of the things that are out there uh, being touted by Christians is how to and how to treat uh, immigrants and how to uh, decide on policy. Uh, pretty crazy. Uh, I think it is, and um, I think it speaks to some of the issues you and I wanted to get to tonight. Um, and that is our little Christian subculture in uh, America and uh, where we spend a lot of time talking to each other uh, and uh, not a whole lot of time engaging the culture in a healthy or wholesome way. So, uh, you know, if you put a face on it, uh, things tend to change a little bit. And um, seeing these children, seeing the situation they're in, uh, will uh, will change your mind and change your heart about things. Um, and we're, uh, I, I think you're right. I think we need to do more thinking about how Christians interact with the, the culture, with groups that come to us from outside, uh, not only the church, but the country. And uh, uh, Albert Reyes, who heads up uh, Buckner Benevolence, uh, a wonderful Hispanic gentleman and a friend uh, of mine, now head of Buckner Benevolence, uh, once told me the, the great winner in this tide of immigration from the South into the United States is going to be agnosticism. And uh, if our primary endeavor as Christians is to help people come to Christ, and I still kind of think that's high on the list, uh, then uh, obviously we're going to have to find a way to companion, not confront, certainly not combat, but to, uh, and I know I'm making a verb out of a, a noun, but, you know, live with it. Uh, if we're going to companion this this coming tidal wave of immigration um, and try to make certain that agnosticism is not the big winner, uh, we're going to have to engage the culture as uh, as Christians in such a way that someone actually wants to come to Christ. Mm-hmm. So that that's what we're about there in those items. You know, you've long had a, um, a a thread that applies a good deal of rigor uh, when it comes to thinking about issues, really no matter what they are. What, what, were, what were the key influences on you for uh, that? I mean, what, was that just well, natural? Part of was, it there, was there an influence? Is, uh, 
Yeah, well, part part of my situation was as an evangelical Christian uh, and as an evangelistic Christian, and there can be a difference in those two things. I, I just, as I know I've already said, and I'll probably say again in this interview, I, Christians spend too much time talking to Christians. Let me give you an example. Not long ago, my little church very kindly uh, sent me on a retreat. Uh, three days out in the country in a little camp. And, uh, you know, very well-meaning. And I looked forward to it. I thought it would be a time of reflection and solitude. And instead... After an hour or so, it became obvious that this was a, a speechifying uh, gathering in which uh, Christians were going to talk to Christians and we were all going to uh, agree with each other about various things, grace and uh, salvation and, of course, the Bible and various and sundry other things like that. Um, after I figured that out, um, I made it my calling uh, and my intention the rest of that weekend to try to make everybody just as uncomfortable as I possibly could. And I, I was very successful uh, by just trying to apply some kind of uh, questioning to, uh, you know, to the little Christian subculture thing we've got. I understand going to a Christian church, listening to Christian songs, listening to a Christian sermon, giving a Christian invitation, but we've, we've kind of taken that uh, to an extreme, haven't we? And now we have to have Christian psychology, and we have to have Christian athletics, and we have to have Christian celebrities, and we just, everything has to have that name in front of it. And uh, that seems to give, uh, and I suppose, a holy impromptu to it. We end up uh, constantly being disappointed uh, by all that, don't we? Uh, One thing after another proves to be a little uh, perhaps less Christian. So uh, it bothered me that... uh, Christians spend all their time talking to Christians. We write books for Christians. We sing songs for Christians. We have turned it into a uh, really an, an industry. And uh, a number of years ago, I just decided that that I wanted to spend, uh, and I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but I guess it just will, uh, I wanted to spend less time talking to Christians and more time talking with people who were decidedly not Christian, or at least if they were not decidedly non-Christian, they were people who had not decided for Christ and really were not not too concerned about it one way or another. And uh, I found a quote from Augustine that uh, was very meaningful to me a number of years ago. Let me see if I can repeat it. Augustine wrote... uh, a man, he, it was a paternalistic age, and you could write a man in those days. But uh, he wrote, a man should always approach God as though he were willing to be persuaded, but only as though he were willing to be persuaded. And 
that was meaningful to me because it essentially said to me, the God who found me in the first place is the God who keeps me to the last point. Uh, and I'm in great danger if God ever falls out of love with me. And I have got to constantly be uh, listening to the persuasion of God, which I wasn't hearing in seminary. I wasn't hearing it in Bible college. I wasn't hearing it in most of the uh, Christian talks I listened to. And I, so I wasn't sure how well we were uh, imparting that to people just flat out didn't care one way or another. Uh, apparently, that's more and more of our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more of our culture is made up of people who just don't so much care about this. And I wanted to spend more of my time uh, talking with, not talking at or even talking to, but talking with people who had not decided for Christ and uh, discover why they hadn't decided for Christ and and help them try to at least uh, get interested in God's persuasion. And I I think that's where it started with me. I, I, I just saw too many of us spending too much of our time uh, just needing to go to things that had that Christian tag on it uh, and not not spending enough time uh, out in the culture with people who had a different uh, worldview. And I, I think that's where it started for me. And so in, in the course of those conversations, uh, have there been any um, particular surprises? All of it is startling. Um uh, all the conversations are startling. Um, all the relationships have a, you know, an environment of uh, surprise to them, an element of surprise, rather. Uh, I think about a young lady I met who uh, was working in a coffee shop, and uh, it will not surprise anyone who knows me that I frequented a coffee shop. Um, and uh, would take my computer and my books and whatever I use online and. Uh, do my study uh, there and uh, listen to people speak in the Koine, in the in the vulgar uh, language, uh, the common language of uh, of the locale. And after a while, this young lady came down and started sitting down at my table and asking me questions about who I was and what I did. Um, I was a little bit startled or surprised to find out that many of the young people who work for minimum wage behind the counters of of these places also uh, supplement their uh, income. And I'm going to try to say this in a nice way by by uh, selling themselves, mm. and and that was her case. Mm. Uh, and just as a past, even at that time, a past middle-aged local minister uh, in, a, in a box church, uh, I was a little startled at how open uh, this generation is, postmodern, millennials, whatever you want to call them, 
Uh, everything you call them is right. Everything you call them is wrong because we haven't lived out far enough to know what they are yet. It'll be mm-hmm. 30 years before we know what it was. But she's just very open about her life experiences and how she supplemented her income. And uh, once we settled the fact that she could bring me coffee, but that's all uh, we were going to uh, purchase, um, we began to have long, uh, meaningful conversations about her life and uh, what she thought, what she believed. And like many of her generation who are not part of the Christian subculture, here's what we discovered. Um, she has a, a philosophical, logical uh, forebear uh, ancestor uh, about whom she'd never heard. She'd never read anything about him, but her uh, generational great-grandpa uh, was uh, Immanuel Kant. And uh, Kant, among the many tens of thousands of other words that he wrote, wrote this very compelling uh, sentence, and it's compelling if you read it in German. It's uh, compelling if you read it translated into English. Kant said, truth, with a capital T, truth, with a capital T, is actually just information filtered through one's own needs and intellectual or cognitive abilities. That is to say, uh, there's no truth with a capital T. Everything is subjective. Everything is relative. Everything that we think, everything that we think we know, everything we know we know. All truth is just information that's come to us, and it's been filtered through our need, our particular emotional need or or physical need, or intellectual need, or all of the above, and our ability to handle that information, our intellectual capacity. Certainly somebody with a 160 IQ has a different ability to handle information than somebody with a, a lower IQ or a substantially lower IQ. It doesn't mean they're less of a person. It just means that they handle information differently. And that is the intellectual forebear, I I think, of this whole postmodern millennial generation. I think it's Immanuel Kant and his statement that truth, all truth, is just information that's come to us and it's filtered then through our own intellectual ability and our own needs so that my truth is my truth, it works for me. Your truth is your truth. It works for you. And uh, everything uh, that we think and everything that we know is just that. It's not real truth. It's something else, something other, and quite frankly, something less. So when Christians have a conversation with a Kantian, what we're really talking about is the difference between someone who believes that Christ came into the world, lived a life, died a death, was resurrected, uh, lives again, lives still, 
and is the truth, the light that lights everyone who comes into the world, the, the truth of God, the truth about God, the truth from God. Uh, we're talking to somebody who has to believe that everything is uh, roughly equivalent, everything is roughly equal, all religion is the same, all uh, politics are essentially the same. Everything is just, it's just different people look at it differently because of our ability to gather and handle information. So to approach somebody with uh, a four spiritual laws kind of approach or uh, an I'm okay, you're okay approach uh, simply does not speak to the particular need uh, of the individual. Objective truth is just not something that, that works for them. And Christians are thought of in that world as, as somebody nice, somebody who maybe practices an ethic that's better than, than what some other people practice, but it's really not meaningful. It's not really something that ought to change my life because my way of thinking is just as good as anybody else's. Uh, a lot of these conversations are uh, startling. Uh, if you if you look at the way uh, they work themselves out in a person's uh, life and and what they're able to do in the philosophical, ethical, moral uh, gymnastics that they can perform, because frankly, they simply don't believe in objective truth. Um, and it, it's startling some of the things that they can talk themselves into. Well, if you were going to encourage uh, uh, a next young uh, minister uh, and you were going to make some suggestions so that they might be more ably prepared for those kinds of conversations. And not that they would necessarily not encounter any sort of surprise or a sense of being startled, but, but that they would not be put off by uh, the responses they would get. Where would you point them? What would, you, what, what would your suggestions be to them? Where, where would they... Um, uh, pre-prepare for those conversations in those coffee shops, having been themselves maybe influenced by this subjective turn uh, with regard to mm. truth? Mm. I, first of all, I think I would tell them to know what our Christian presuppositions are. Um, I was listening to you, uh, uh, a video on YouTube the other day. I'm not sure how I found it. I'm pretty sure I found it looking for something else because that's usually how I find things uh, on the web, as you know, um, stumbling and bumbling around. Uh, but there was a, a very techno-savvy young man who was explaining his religion, uh, which is not Christianity. And he got to point six on explaining his religion, and uh, he looked into the camera, uh, metaphorically, uh, 
staring us, uh, his viewers, eyeball to eyeball. Uh, his body language changed, his gaze changed, and he said, my religion practices holy war. Deal with it. And then he went on to his next point. Now, you need to understand, he was giving 10 points, 10 major points about his religion, uh, items one through five. Uh, it took quite some time for him to explain, and he gave a very lucid, cogent presentation. Items 7, 8, 9, and 10, lucid, cogent, uh, long presentation. When he got to number six, everything changed. He stared into the camera, again, metaphorically staring at you and me, and said, my religion, which he named, practices holy war. And then there was a pause, and then the phrase, deal with it. And then he went on. Now, I'm not wild about that idea, um, especially since I'm probably somebody he'd practice holy war against. However, his grasp of his presuppositional statement at that point was uh, very compelling. I, I wonder about our ability as Christians uh, to look into the camera and change our body language and change our gaze and change the level of our voice and say, Christianity practices salvation. Deal with it. Uh, I, would, I would tell uh, young people who are considering ministry, whether it's vocational Christian ministry or something else, to have some understanding of our presuppositional statements. And uh, the stronger, the better. Uh, at the particular retreat I was talking about a few minutes ago, one of the statements I made around the table is, Christianity is a shame-based religion founded in tragedy. Uh, that's not the kind of language that I think we're accustomed to hearing at our our little Christian subculture retreats, seminars, clinics, whatever. But if you look at our religion as we present it, it's uh, from the very beginning a shame-based religion that is founded in tragedy. Adam and Eve, original man and original woman, whether we take them as actual literal persons or just the metaphor for the founding of our race, uh, almost from the beginning, and certainly from the beginning uh, of the point where they encounter God negatively, uh, shame enters in. We're a shame-based religion founded in tragedy. Jesus died a sacrificial, atoning death. It's tragic. Uh, Paul died. Paul suffered. Peter died. James died. John died. Uh, all of these, uh, all of these deaths are of a purely classically tragic nature. Uh, a tragedy is not a catastrophe. Uh, a tragedy is an occurrence 
that uh, has its seeds sown in an early act, and the climax uh, of that early act, and it might be three acts and uh, and a curtain call later, but the seeds that are sown early on ultimately lead to tragic consequences for the protagonist, for the hero of the piece. Christianity, uh, regardless of what else we might like to say about it, about the joy, the victory, the happiness, the peace, the serenity, uh, as it's presented to us in Scripture and as we present it from most pulpits and uh, in most of our literature, we can't deny the fact that we're a shame-based religion uh, founded in the tragic death of our uh, protagonist, of our hero. When you understand that, you start to understand um, how to speak uh, to this generation as well. Uh, because despite the fact that that this generation is Kantian in the sense that, that they believe in the subjectivity, the relativity of knowledge and truth and information, there is a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of shame that goes along with this kind of hedonism. Kierkegaard, uh, for instance, uh, who's, uh, I don't think it's an apt, uh, description of him that he is the melancholy Dane. Uh, he gets that applied to him primarily because he writes so much about shame and about tragedy. Uh, but he believed that uh, a, a naive materialist, which is uh, the bulk of this post-millennial contemporary generation, the uh, the bulk of their understanding uh, has a great deal to do with shame. And why? Because it's the same kind of naive materialism that uh, Kierkegaard was writing about, the same kind of hedonism that, that he meant when he said in in this kind of culture, the ultimate ends have to be guilt, uh, boredom, exhaustion. Uh, why? Because that's the only place that the kind of naive materialism that our culture practices, that those are the only places it can end up. Naive materialism that sets aside spiritual truth and spiritual reality cannot end in joy or happiness or even peace or serenity. Uh, they have to look outside their naive materialism uh, to find that. So um, I think in having conversations uh, with these folks, you have to understand uh, that the key elements uh of the conversation are going to be uh, the sad relativism 
uh, and the naive materialism uh, that that they evidence. Uh, this is an unhappy generation. It's a shame-based generation uh, that, uh, you know, frankly, uh, there's a lot of tragedy in this generation. They, uh, a good many of these young people can tell you where they were when uh, this or that uh, important musical or uh, cultural figure died. And uh, there's, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of tragedy. And uh, frankly, if you look at it, it's a direct result of what Kierkegaard uh, would have called naive materialism. And so when you um, <clears throat> draw out the uh, trajectory of where these conversations derive and you can identify uh, Kant and Kierkegaard and and, and so you, you, didn't, you didn't just happen on those things uh, you, you I mean those weren't just intuited you, no, you studied absolutely. you read right. you so what, what what were uh what were some of the sources uh, i i remember you telling me about your regular conversations with uh right uh, uh wallace Roark. uh when i when i lived for a time in uh near him dr wallace Roark, r o a r k <laughs> who nearing 8 years of age um has retired from classroom teaching and is just writing uh, short books on philosophy and logic now. Um, he and I would have uh, regular conversations uh, almost, well, every week anyway, if not daily. Uh, he was a fellow who taught logic, uh, either forensic or rhetorical, or even symbolic logic to uh, college students for uh, 30 years. Um, I never sat in one of his classes, but he and I became friends. And uh, he would give me long lectures on relativism and uh, open-ended eschatology and these things. It made me wish, again, that uh, somebody had pointed me that way as a, a younger person, anything learned when you're younger is, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like if you start saving money when you're younger, it, it adds up uh, when you're when you're my age. Uh, I wish somebody had, had gotten me into it. Uh, he pointed me towards some books um, and some study materials, uh, and many a late night was spent on... Uh, you know, the study of logic, whether it's symbolic logic or forensic logic or rhetorical logic or, uh, you know, name some kind of logic. Sure. Uh, he pointed me toward a, a little book from, uh, I think, 1959, a little primer uh, just called Logic, written by uh, uh, Salmon, Salmon uh, and now the name's gone. 
Anyway, you can find it on Google. Yes. Uh, yes. And there are not that many people named uh, Salmon. Salmon. Uh, I was about to say Salmon Chase, but that was uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Treasury Secretary. So I don't. I don't think it was him. Uh, he pointed me toward that little primer on symbolic logic. I found a lot of help from John Newport, and your listeners could certainly uh, just Google uh, the Newport Lectures uh, and John Newport, uh, late professor of uh, philosophy at uh, Southwestern Seminary. I never sat in one of his classes either, but uh, I have uh, one of his books I carry around with me uh, most days, and it's uh, just entitled Life's Ultimate Questions. And it would be a great primer uh, for somebody. It's not easy reading. As a matter of fact, it's hard reading, uh, but very helpful. And uh, will will help uh, a person look at other worldviews that are not part of our Christian subculture, that are uh, Kantian. And for that matter, uh, you can read A Critique of Pure Reason by, uh, by Kant. And you're going to find a, a, a lot of what I've mentioned. Uh, he and Newport and um, uh, Roark uh, writes ebooks now. Uh, if you can imagine somebody being able uh, to follow my instructions and get online and start <laughs> writing ebooks, that's how Roark got into it in his 70s. And uh, while Roark is an absolute contrarian, he is also a very capable thinker. He's just one of these guys who's so smart, uh, he can take your side of the argument and whip you, or he can take his side of the argument and whip you. Uh, he's just a very capable contrarian and uh, a very helpful influence, uh, even though a contrarian. Uh, the late Dallas Willard, mm-hmm. who was... Uh, professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California, who wrote, I I think, the seminal Christian work for our time uh, in in the same way that C.S. Lewis and uh, Chesterton were the the seminal writers in their days. Uh, Divine Conspiracy, Dr. Willard's uh, magnum opus, Divine Conspiracy, ought to be read by every Christian wonderful little lady in my little Methodist church uh, heard me talk about it on my first Sunday. And uh, I've been there nearly three years now. And she came up, she was so excited the other day. She had finally read the last page of uh, Divine Conspiracy (laughs) uh, by Dallas Willard. And she said, that book's hard to read. Yes, ma'am, it is. But it's a magnificent book. And uh, she talked about buying copies of it for her friends. Some of them would still even talk to her after being exposed to that book. Um, it's just a wonderful, uh, I think it's the seminal Christian work for our, uh, for our time. Uh, Dr. Willard uh, also wrote, uh, not long before he died, he wrote a book on Christian epistemology mm-hmm. uh, called Knowing Christ Today. And it's uh, a magnificent little work. It's even harder reading, uh, I thought, than Divine Conspiracy. But it's much shorter, 
and I, I recommend these works uh, to people. Don't, don't read some old pedophoging pastor like me. Don't read our old sermons. Don't waste your time with that. Uh, spend some time uh, learning uh, thought processes and other worldviews. Um, I'm sure it will totally mess you up. It will just uh, make you uh, unable just to carry on a simple conversation with uh, another person, even from your own faith tradition. But it ought to be done. Uh, and in fact, it has to be done if we're going to talk to this culture and if we're going to reverse the, the negative flow uh, out, of most, uh, out of most churches and out of most uh, Christian organizations uh, at this point. Uh, Christianity is much less representative of our culture. We know this. Uh, it's not... We sensed it for the longest time, but now we know it. Empirically, uh, we have uh, data-driven conclusions that lead us to know uh, that uh, that just we're just not impacting this culture uh, as as we did years ago. And uh, we're going to change that. We're going to have to learn how to talk to people in this culture, who do not accept our icons. Not only do they not know them, but if they do know them, they're horrified by them. Yeah. And uh, we're, our inability to speak with them in a language they can understand uh, is just something I, I can't uh, countenance, just can't live with it. Uh, we're a religion that offers salvation, but we don't offer it to very many. Yeah. Well, there are a couple things that, that come to mind uh, out of that. And, and the first of, of which is, uh, not only did you make some good recommendations, uh, for resources, and I think as Wesley Salmon is, is, I think. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. You reference him there. But you also, uh, I think pointed up the need to have uh, good uh, thinking conversation partners. So maybe not everybody can uh, locate a, a roar um, close by, but uh, if you intentionally, you know, to borrow Willard's, you know, uh, particular emphasis on intentionality, mm-hmm. if you're intending to have better conversations, learn the language, learn how to have a conversation, uh, in this culture, uh, then, then having conversation partners that help you along in thinking so you're not kind of out there uh, chasing this all alone is, is pretty helpful. So whether it's, you know, I pick up the phone and call you or, or uh, over time uh, develop other friendships more locally uh, here, but having a good conversation partner uh, is, is really a plus. And I, I would say instrumental uh, along with the, the book recommendations of the authors mm-hmm. you've recommended. Is that mm-hmm. fair? I, well, I just, I think it's a vital point. Um, and if you have a conversation with yourself, uh, I hope everybody is uh, journaling. Um, 
I have, uh, I guess, eight or ten or eleven or twelve long journals, uh, book length. I'm working. I have one open in front of me right now. Uh, I'm keeping these uh, for each of my children and grandchildren. And uh, here's something that your listeners might find interesting. People have asked me to uh, to write a journal for them. Um, people out of this culture, uh, the young lady I mentioned who was making part of her living behind the coffee bar, part of her living uh, in uh, in a very different way, uh, asked me what I was writing one day, and I told her I'm writing a journal and. Uh, it, she said, well, it's a big, long thing, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. It's just I've got a lot of uh, stuff that I think about every day. Um, I don't sleep a whole lot, so I write in it at night a lot. And um, I am uh, leaving one of these for each one of my children and each one of my grandchildren and each one of the children, uh, the people that my children are married to, the, my in-love uh, three daughters in love and one son in love. Uh, we'll call them in law. Uh, refer, prefer to refer to them as in love, and uh, one for each of the grandchildren. And um, she said, "Well, I, I wish you would write me one." And uh, I took a couple of three months, set my other journals aside, and just wrote. Uh, about a 200-page journal uh, to her, the the things that I'd like for her to know, the things I'd like for her to think about. And um, she's long gone from me now, but I talked to her um, just a few weeks ago. She called me, and that's not true. It was on Father's Day. She calls me each year on Father's Day Hmm. and uh, didn't have a real father influence in her life. Um, so she calls me on Father's Day, and uh, I just ask her, do you, do you still have that journal I gave you? Yes. She's moved five or six or seven times since then. Did you, did you keep it? I did. And I said, well, have you, have you read it? What do you think? And she said, I, I've never read it. Hmm. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I, you know, I spent some time with it, and she said, Every time I open it and read the inscription, I start to cry. Mm-hmm. And I cry really, really hard thinking that somebody took the time to do this for me. Mm-hmm. And I I can't read it because I can't see uh, mm-hmm. through my crying. But one day uh, I'm going to keep trying and one day I'll be able to read it. Um, you know, the the idea that this generation doesn't want us to speak to them is, is just, is, that's not a valid idea. I think there are two good reasons why somebody in this culture does not become a Christian. One is that they, that they don't know an actual Christian and so cannot get the information. And the other is that they do know a Christian and don't want to live like that. 
Um, we just are going to have to have more conversations. Uh, these folks can train you <clears throat> about how to speak to them. Is we're we're in an unusual day, aren't we? We have uh, the traditionals still in our culture and our society. Uh, the people who led the church and the culture from the end of World War II into the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, these were people who could all dress alike. Uh, I liken it to going to a Billy Graham crusade, a mass crusade back in the day. And the men wore the white shirts, short-sleeved, and the skinny white ties. Black ties, I mean, white shirts, black ties. And, uh, you know, black trousers and shined black shoes and the ladies wore the nice dresses. What what was the dominant force uh, working on that culture? Well, the traditionals, they'd been through a depression and a world war. They knew how to march. They knew how to obey authority. They knew how to sit in rows. And so they could go and hear uh, a traditional gospel presentation and when commanded, at the invitation time, uh, could come forward in mass. Uh, we moved out of that into the 60s, and, and you get the culture, uh, the moderns, of which I'm a part, that um, uh, for want of a better uh, description, they could read and even present a four spiritual laws uh, kind of tract and at the end of it, uh, ask a person, is there any reason why you should not pray this prayer with me? Uh, what was it for moderns? It was a sales presentation. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people got to the end of uh, that presentation. A lot of people, we say, prayed to receive Christ. Uh, the most Christian man I ever knew was my father. And I assure you, he never prayed that magic prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, he was converted at age 57. Uh, his life completely, utterly, totally, 100% changed, was radically changed in every way. And yet he never got around to listening to the presentation and praying the magic prayer, uh, which indicates that that wasn't the only way to do it, nor was uh, being in a Billy Graham crusade and being the kind of person who could wear the uniform and come forward as commanded. Uh, the business presentation, the modern business presentation model lasted, I suppose it's still out there. <laughs> it lasted well into the, into the 80s, I think, <laughs> and maybe closer to 911 uh, when, when everything changed again. And I, I think it was changing prior to that. These Postmoderns, contemporary, Xers, millennials, busters, uh, whatever we're going to end up calling them 30 to 50 years from now, when I will be safely gone, uh, that group uh, may have a lot in common with the traditionals, but the idea of going someplace and all dressing alike and sitting in rows and uh, moving forward on command, that's simply not available. That's not going to happen. No. Uh, there are some exceptions that prove the rule, but by and large, that's just not going to happen. 
the idea that they're going to listen to a modern sales presentation and not have bells and whistles uh, going off in the back of their head and uh, red flags coming up and and why won't you let me stop your presentation and ask you a question? Um, that's the modern uh, business presentation kind of thing. It's just not going to work with them. Um, but we have all three generations, don't we? Traditionals, mm-hmm. we do. moderns, and and then whatever this generation is that that our children are, and that their uh, that their children are going to be. And uh, I don't know what the icon is. Uh, I know, you know, uh, in the arena model for the traditionalists, it was Billy Graham. For the four spiritual laws, it was Bill Bright. I don't even know who to point to anymore and say, that's that's the person. That's the woman. That's the man. That's the Billy Graham of our day. For a while, I thought it was going to be somebody like Brian McLaren, but I don't think that anymore. it's, it's. Uh, I suppose, uh, the democratization of uh, the wired generation. Uh, there's not just one icon out there. Uh, I don't know who the person, male or female, is going to end up being, or if there's just not going to be one. But we do have these three generations, the traditionals, the moderns, and then uh, I call them the casserole people because everything has to be done over a meal. Um, the essence of community, and uh, you cannot put them on the spot. Uh, they will turn and run from that uh, quickly. Uh, that generation, uh, we're going to have to speak to not just intelligibly, the other two generations have had to be spoken to intelligibly. Uh, this one's going to have to be spoken to intelligently. And you're going to have to understand uh, the the Kantianism that is behind them. You're going to have to understand the naive materialism that is a part of their human experience in order to have a conversation with them that lasts more than a few minutes uh, where their eyes glaze over and they just go away. Look at the, look at the, uh, look at the postmodern evangelical atheist of our day. Uh, Dawkins, Rogers, Hawkins for that matter. Right. Uh, they're they're not just atheists uh, or level seven agnostics, <clears throat> excuse me, or whatever they call themselves at this point. They're evangelical in their atheism, and uh, their ethic, uh, whereas prior generations uh, thought that there really couldn't be an ethical framework that was apart from religion because ultimately uh, ethics uh, found its uh, base in God, in, in objective truth. This generation that simply doesn't buy into the whole idea of God or of objective truth uh, is bombarded now by this... Uh, new generation of evangelical atheists 
who not only want to practice atheism for themselves, but they want you to practice it too. Uh, to the point that, uh, what was it, two or three, four years ago, there was a, a conference uh, planned uh, that was uh, to discuss uh, with this generation uh, the geopolitics of uh, environmentalism. And um, there were people who said, well, we have to have the environmental scientist and we have to have the politicians and we have to have the theologians and the evangelical atheists just wet themselves saying theology's not even a real field. It's nothing. It's There's no substance to it. No, these people can't have a seat at the table. They can't uh, have a part in the conversation. Um, that was not as disturbing to me as the fact that people who were the Christian spokespeople at that time, I suppose you'd say, didn't have anything intelligible or intelligent to say in reply. One well-known megachurch pastor just said, well, there are a lot of us. Do I need to say more? And I I was thinking, well, yeah, you need to say a lot more. Well, these people are not just going to give you a place at the table uh, just because there are a lot of people who go to church on Sunday. These people can just look back at you and say, well, they're a lot less than there used to be, and if we have their, our way, there will be fewer still. Mm-hmm. Uh, that This generation of evangelical atheists uh, ultimately say, we don't need your ethics, we don't need you at the table, we don't believe uh, what you believe, and we don't believe in what you believe, and we don't even want you in the conversation because we have our own ethics uh, separate and apart from any theistic ethics. Now, what is that? That, again, there's Immanuel Kant saying all truth is what? Information filtered through one's own needs and cognitive abilities. And you have this little piddly God theistic thing that works for you Christians, but it, you can go sit at the kiddie table. This is for the grown-ups over here. And our ethic is plainly and simply this. Uh, we don't need God to tell us that the planet is suffering. We don't need God to tell us that other beings on this planet are suffering. That's our ethic. We're going to deal with the pain of this planet. We're going to deal with the suffering of persons on this planet. Uh, Our ethic is founded in the pain of others, and we don't need God to tell us this. Well, if I'm looking at you and saying that none of my ethics are theistic, that all of my ethics are just Founded in the in in the ability to feel uh, empathy, a certain amount of empathy for people who are suffering. What have I just told you? I've just told you that I am a rank, naive materialist, hmm. and so the conversation changes for us when we hear that. My whole ethic, my whole philosophy, my whole way of looking at life is. 
people are able, people are suffering, beings are suffering, the planet is hurting, and we're going to be part of uh, changing that. We're going to we're going to at least speak to it, but we don't need your God or people who believe in God at the table. What they've told us is that they are rank, naive, materialist. What is ultimately a materialist, ultimately a materialist, is either a nihilist or a hedonist. And the end product of nihilism is not wholesome or healthy and will not alleviate suffering. It's going to cause more suffering. And the hedonism that is part of this experience Christopher Hitchens, uh, a, a, an evangelical atheist, and I understand from a lot of Christian pastors who visited with him, a heck of a nice guy, a rank hedonist, who, if he had not died of cancer, would have ultimately, I'm, I'm sorry, caused his own demise in some other way that brought suffering. Frankly, heck of a nice guy, a rank hedonist. If we're going to talk to this generation, then we have to be able to to show them and to have at least an intelligible, intelligent conversation with them where we say, no, uh, there's there's more than that. There's more than believing that there's suffering in the world. Anybody with vision, anybody with hearing can tell you there's suffering in the world. Uh, theistic responses, theistic ethics, uh, don't just acknowledge the suffering of others. Uh, we, we believe that our purpose uh, in dealing with suffering is to oppose evil. And we actively oppose evil, which is that which causes the suffering in this world. It is the presence of, of evil. And yes, theistic people have proven that we can be, uh, well, evil. But for those of us who've been claimed and changed by the Christ, we believe that God has put us here, that God has us here, that God maintains us here, <laughs> not just to alleviate suffering, the suffering of other beings, but to oppose the evil, to actively, fundamentally oppose the evil, to oppose the evil, rather. That is the source of this suffering. And our theistic ethic keeps us from going to the the logical extreme of the naive materialist who, frankly, is uh, much like the Ivy League professor who says uh, that it's, uh, it's more criminal to abort a pig fetus uh, than a human fetus because uh, pigs are more useful and there aren't as many pigs as there are people in the world. Uh, and it, it, the guy actually says this. Mm. Uh, where'd that come from? Uh, a naive materialistic philosophy, a naive materialistic 
ethic that just says everything is alike, all thought is alike, all life is alike, some of us are just smarter than other people, and we're better able to handle knowledge and information. And we can say things that might sound shocking, like, for instance, it's better to kill a baby human than it is to kill a baby pig because there are too many people in the world and they're not as useful as the pigs. He can say this in all seriousness and apparently hold on to his uh, position uh, saying things that, that, frankly, a theistic ethicist would not be able to countenance. Right. Uh, well, why not? Well, because uh, we believe that the end of this naive materialism or uh, anarchic materialism uh, that was so much of what Marx uh, did and believed and taught. Uh, the end result of those things, uh, naive idealism or even more advanced materialism, those things, we've seen the consequences of those worldviews or thought systems played out in the past. And we have come to believe for ourselves, that a theistic ethic uh, favors uh, a monotheistic presentation of God and humankind as a special creation of God. It's nothing against pigs. It's just pro-people. Mm-hmm. And so we, we present our narrative But uh, any good thespian will tell you, you better know your audience. And if we're going to have intelligent and intelligible conversations with persons who don't, uh, don't know our icons and don't accept our narrative, our myth, if you will, uh, we're going to have to understand where they come from. And more and more, influenced by the radical and evangelistic atheism of our day, more and more they're prone to come from the Kantian view, uh, the naive materialist view, the uh, rank materialist view. And frankly, we have an advantage. We have an intellectual advantage over that, uh, that view that just, frankly, is materialistic. Materialism ultimately is unsatisfying. Uh, A being that has eternal potential, as we believe man does, cannot be satisfied with the naive materialism or the rank materialism that is the, the, the founding idea behind the evangelical atheism of our day. There's no hope in it. There's no real purpose in it. And if we believe that human beings are beings that have eternal potential, then we have to understand that that they just are not going to ultimately be satisfied with the naive materialism that is a foundation for the cultural thoughts of our day. Hmm. Well, 
I think you've uh, given uh, our uh, listeners a lot to chew on, uh, good places to go to um, prepare themselves for how to have uh, real conversations, uh, as you put it, you know, outside the church or with with more than just uh, Christians. And so hopefully uh, Rick will have, have provided uh, something uh, not just useful, but encouraging uh, to those who will tune in and, and download and listen in. And uh, So I want to say thank you for your uh, very thoughtful uh, interactions and uh, what it might mean to, to others who do what we do. Well, I appreciate your time, and uh, whether anybody hears this and wants to be uh, associated with me or not, I do hope anybody who listens to this podcast series uh, wants to be associated with with Todd Littleton and with what you do uh, in your work and uh, with your blog site. And uh, As always, my love to you, my love to your family. My kids all still call you Uncle Todd, and there's a reason for that. Thanks for listening to Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. Remember, you can find us here at ToddLittleton.net, ThePastorTheologian.com, ThePastorTheologian.net. Subscribe, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, and remember to share the podcast. Till next time.